We got two minutes past. My apologies. And we have a lot to cover. If you didn't get a handout, there is one just outside of this room. It's a bare bones outline of the material for this next lesson. As you'll know, we are going through the the elements of corporate worship, considered just from start to finish, and we are now at the section at which we consider the word as read and as preached and as a blessing given to God's people. So that's what we are covering today. A lot that could be said, especially about the word preached those who preach, and uh, how to do it and all that. There's a lot there, but I'm going to have to be pretty succinct on the material here. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. My gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to consider another element, different stages in the liturgy, stages at which we focus upon the Word we're thankful, Lord, that throughout the whole service, your word is front and center. And we begin reading it. And in the middle we read it. At the end we read it. There's the preached word, and there's the word given as a blessing upon your people. I do pray, Lord, that as we consider these elements, that you would cause us to value your word all the more and worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we have, like I said, the word read, word preached, and benedicted as a blessing. Go through these in order then. First here is the word read. Now we have to, we can't take it for granted, though in one sense we're glad that we can because the word prescribes what we are to read, what we are to do in worship, and our public church order summarizes that teaching. But this is the word that is read, and the word that is preached, and the word that is used as a blessing. So we're not focused here on, we're not doing dances, we're not doing dramas in worship, we are not uh, exalting images, we are exalting the word. That's our focus. And even the two images that are given man as sacraments, they are the word Visible. So the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are speaking of the word in visible form. So what do we read? Well, I've mentioned this from the pulpit several times when we get to the affirmation or the reading section. First Timothy 4.13, Paul says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. He's not saying, don't let there be any private reading of the Scripture. He's talking to Timothy, young minister. This is what you're, what you're to do. And he says, until I come. That's not to say, once I do come, you can stop devoting yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is, he's saying, this is what you want to emphasize. This is what you, as a young minister, are to devote yourself to and to urge the people to devote themselves to. The reading of Scripture. The public reading of Scripture. And the BCO... In chapter 50, section 3 says, The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments shall be read from a good translation, not a paraphrase, 
in the language of the people. So, we are devoted to the reading of the Word of God. We are devoted to the doctrine. We're devoted to the teaching of the Word. And doctrine applied. There's that, so exhortation has that uh, urging, that pleading with people that they might apply the Word to their hearts. And it's the Holy Scriptures that are to be read. We're not reading Bernstein Bears. Okay? We're not reading chicken soup for the soul or whatever it's called. We're not even reading Calvin's Institutes as great as they are. We're not doing that. When, it, when it's a worship time, it's time to read. We're reading the Scripture. We're talking about the 66 books of the Bible. We're not reading the Apocrypha as useful as that might be for education or background. We do not view that as the Word of God. We don't read that for the public reading of Scripture. We read Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. And uh, you see that we read from all books of the Bible. And one of the things I, I love about Cross Creek that Pastor Owen had, uh, obviously with the session's approval, had instituted the robust reading of the Word of God at that section in the liturgy. So he'll have, he has, through every, something from the major sections of Scripture. So a reading from the Law, from the Prophets, the Writings, a reading from the Gospels, from the Epistles. Now we don't do one reading from all of those every single Lord's Day, but we do read from many of those, and sometimes from all of them. And it just depends on how much we want to read, taking into account the time of the service and all that. But it's all scripture. No book is off the table if it's a book of the Bible. That's what we read. Yes, we're not, we're not ashamed to read Leviticus. We're not ashamed to read some of those texts that might offend our modern sensibilities. No. We read all of scripture. Why do we read? We read because we desire exhortation. We desire to be taught. We know that the Word of God, inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And we desire to be taught. We desire to be reproved. We know our sin. We know that we need to be corrected. We also want to be trained in righteousness. We want to grow to be more and more like the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ. So that's why we read. We devote ourselves to public reading, because we know that that's what God has prescribed, and because we know that is what's good for us. Who should do the reading? This, again, is in the context of public. This is corporate worship. Who should do the reading? Our Book of Church Order says, the public reading of the Holy Scripture is performed by a minister as God's servant. Through it, God speaks most directly to the congregation, even more directly than through the sermon. So who reads the, the word? A minister as a servant of the Lord. The public reading is an exercise of spiritual authority. When a minister reads, the people who are hearing it are standing under the, the authority of the word of God. And the minister is a servant in the hands of the Lord to give you that word. To read, thus saith the Lord. 
And remember, the ministry of the preacher, pastor, of the uh, session is, uh, is declarative. It's ministerial. What we do, our church power, given by God, who's the head of the church, our church power is a spiritual authority by which we minister the word of God, by which we declare what God says. And because it's that, only a minister, someone who has been lawfully ordained, is fit to do that reading. This is not, again, to say that uh, an, an unordained man or that a female can't read the word of God. Obviously, he and she can and must and it's a dereliction of duty if they do not read the Word of God privately and in, in smaller groups or whatever. But when it comes to the corporate worship, the one who preaches is normally the one who reads the Word of God. All ministers, elders, have been lawfully ordained, and so they have the spiritual authority under the head, who is Christ, to do that reading. Are you saying that? sounds like you're saying that only the minister has the authority to read the scripture in church service. Yes, that is what I'm saying. Have we not heard elders and deacons? Yes, so someone who's lawfully ordained. So they're ordained, as you would call them, ordained. Yeah, they are ordained, yeah. We, we lay hands on them. So um, we see some of this in 1 Timothy 4, 14. Do not neglect, this is just after what I had just read, until I come to like yourself the public reading of Scripture. And verse 14, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So the authority to read and preach was given to Timothy at the laying on of hands. So that was when he was ordained to the office of elder, the office of pastor. And we see that uh, in our Book of Church Order, summarizing in, in, the, in the Catechism, or uh, yeah, larger Catechism, and perhaps even the confession, teaching elders, ruling elders, they are the ones who read the word, and obviously the teaching elders are the ones who focus on teaching and preaching. Licentiates are also allowed to read the word of God. So that is someone who has been approved by the session and by the presbytery to preach the gospel. Usually, a licentiate is so for one to five years, as he is working through seminary. He's already been taken under care, and he is testing his gifts. He's, 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 you know, churches are seeing if he's preaching well, uh, so he's allowed, of course, to, to read the word. Interns, those who have been taken under care by the session and by the presbytery, are given the opportunity to test their gifts. So they, of course, are also allowed to read the Word of God in the public setting. Remember, that's what we're talking about here, the public setting of the Word. So those who have been ordained, those who have been approved by the, the session, by the presbytery, uh, and, of course, by the General Assembly, uh, they're the ones who are fit, who have been uh, given this spiritual authority to some degree or another to read and, of course, uh, to preach or to exhort. So, usually, the one who's going to preach is also the one who's going to read the, the Word of God. Uh, the, what, the, the section 
the sections of scripture that aren't the sermon text that anticipate because usually especially in this in this congregation what we do is we have several readings at that point to highlight to uh, mention something that the sermon text is going to uh, address anticipate the sermon text and on. so there is some explanation and some exhortation how much scripture are we to read well you might want to have you know, all 66 books read in one public city, but that would take days. And our church, uh, Burger Church Order says, the length is left to the discretion of every minister. And he may, when he thinks it expedient, expound any part of what is read, have regard to the time. So, say, don't wax long, minister, okay? You all, you're going to be preaching in just a little bit, so hold on. But you want to help them, you want to help the congregation to hear what is about to be read. So it's good to sometimes give the underlying context, or to make even some connections on the front end with the sermon. And sometimes we have just a single verse, like today from Romans, it'll be 16, 13, just one verse. Proverbs will be just two verses, 32, 30, 16, 32, 33, and might be a little bit longer, we have the middle of Psalm 22 uh, as well. Sometimes we'll do full chapters, sometimes even just a, a part of a verse. It's up to the minister, who is considering the whole service and how long it takes you know, each element to be done. We want to have a proper balance. Obviously, the focal point, uh, as we'll see later on, is the sermon, but we don't want to have uh, the, the sermon so long that we can't allow for any scripture reading. Or the scripture reading so long that we can't allow for any sermon. Why not proper balance? How should this reading be done? Well, if you look in your larger catechism, question and answer 157, we have this answer. The Holy Scriptures are to be read with a high and reverent esteem of them, with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God and that he only can enable us to understand them with desire to know, believe, and obey the will of God revealed in them, with diligence and attention to the matter and scope of them, with meditation, application, self-denial, and prayer. So how we read the word with awe, with faith, with reliance on the Holy Spirit, with a willingness to obey, and with, of course, diligent prayer. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, this is really quite important because one of the biggest challenges facing the body of Christ on a global level is the lack of familiarity with the Bible. Even though there are now Bibles available in hundreds of languages, the lack of simple, simply knowing what's there is the biggest problem facing the Bible for the body of Christ on a global level. This is really quite valuable that we uh, read the Bible a lot as a Yes, it is one way of, of teaching, uh, hearing the whole counsel of the Word of God. And sometimes the, there will be a scripture reading that maybe will be the first and only time that a person hears it that year. So the application, of course, is quite evident. It is to hear the Word of God. To pray that you would listen to the Word of God when it is being read. To listen to it with clarity. You would pray, even while it's being read, that 
you'd be, pray, you'd be praying for understanding. And even conviction and growth in godliness. Uh, a few weeks ago, somebody had mentioned how uh, powerful a certain point was, and the person said it was in my sermon. It actually wasn't in my sermon at all. It was from uh, a text I had in Revelation, that for the reading of, of the Word. I'm, I'm glad that just at that point, we have the Word doing what the Lord does in His Word, whether it's read or preached. And that was, that was the thing that she, she, you know, that was her takeaway, was what the Lord had said in that. I imagine she got other things from other readings and over the sermon as well. But we cannot minimize this section of the liturgy. It's very important. We love the Word of God. We don't love it as much as we ought to. We want to hear Him speaking to us. And He does that. Charles Hodge, in his sermon on Hebrews 2.14, says, To be like Christ is the perfection of Christian excellence. To be like Christ is the perfection of Christian excellence. So how can we be more like Christ? By knowing his word, by having his word dwell in us richly. Now we turn to the next section, the word preached. Again, this is the word that is to be preached. Okay, yes? Can I make an observation? Yes. Um, I find it interesting, verse 13 uh, from 1 Timothy 4, it seems that that would really kind of throw out the window the people that say, I don't have to go to church just because I'm a Christian. Like the people that say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, but I can worship anywhere. Right. Like, I feel like this verse is just kind of squashes that. Sure. <laughs> I wonder how they would answer that. Well, playing the advocate... Uh, yes. One could say, "Well, yeah, I just I'm out of public, and uh, I mean, I'm with I'm with people. It's just I I, sh I shouldn't be doing it by myself. That's what it is. I mean, it's not a private reading. It's with others, other like-minded believers. Mm -hmm. But of course, the the Bible, New Testament in particular, is, is full of uh, exhortations and just even the assumption that you guys are gathering the Lord at every Lord's day for the Word of God." to be, you know, read, preached, and eaten, okay, to be uh, washed with. Can I say one more thing? Sorry. I, I just suppose. found it very, <laughs> I suppose, I found it really interesting that the larger catechism, in the list of how we should be reading it, that it said with self-denial. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting, because that is sometimes not not in the sense that the word isn't applicable to us, because of course it is. Yeah. But um, I once heard someone say, um, if you are reading scripture looking for yourself, you're not reading it rightly. Like, in other words, not because it's not applicable to us, but if, if I, we're looking at it with that lens of like, oh, well, I'm the David, and what's my Goliath that I'm facing? Like, that kind of like applying what really is Christ's work or Christ's. Mm -hmm. Um, to ourselves that we're not reading it rightly. So I just found that really interesting that they actually list self-denial as one of the ways that we should be reading Scripture. Yeah, and, and that goes back with yeah. the, the one of the purposes, rebuke. Mm -hmm. Do we allow the Word of God to cut us, to expose mm -hmm. us? Because mm -hmm. if, if we're not, then we're not willing to deny ourselves. Mm -hmm. we're, if we're not positioned to deny ourselves, then the Word of God really... It's just the word of another person, and it's really our word that 
is directing our lives. But if we are committed to all of what the Word is supposed to do, and we say, not my will be done, yours, Lord. Use your Word to expose my sin, to expose areas where I am walking with folly and need for wisdom, need to pursue righteousness. And that, of course, hurts. Uh, I'll be talking a little bit later today in the sermon on self-denial and We've got to take up our cross. And that means taking up the word and allowing it to apply to our hearts. So we have the word preached. Again, this is the word that is to be preached. Okay? And I say that uh, because there are people who do not preach the word. And I'm not saying they open up you know, the word and then just take a verse and run with it. That does happen. But I mean, some people just don't even preach the actual word. There was uh, maybe not so much a surprise. Uh, California Church in 2020 did a nine-sermon series on the Enneagram. The Enneagram, that personality test from Richard, you know, Richard Gore and others, Eastern ideas. Oh, Christians are loving it these days. They're gobbling it up. Enneagram. Yeah, so nine. I'm not. I'm not going to explain all of it, but so it's it's a personality test. It is E N N E A G R A M Enneagram. Yes. Oh, it's 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 hugely popular. It's been actually for a number of decades, but it's made inroads into Christianity. And so one pastor was taken up with this, and you know he's being relevant, so he does nine sermon series on Enneagram, saying, "Well, the Lord can speak through the Eastern magicians, and He can speak uh, to to us through this." Whatever. I mean, the point is. We can't take it for granted that you know, we need to preach the Word of God. And that's, that's our focus. It's not on anything else. It's on the six, the six, six books of the Bible. So what is preaching? There's a lot of definitions out there. And I'll give you several here. One man says, Preaching is declaring God's truth in Jesus to the praise of His name. So we have declaration unto doxology. Declaring God's truth that God that God's name might be praised. Another man says, it is the explanation and application of the word in the assembled congregation of Christ. So we have that assembly, and we are explaining and applying. I imagine also illustration would be caught up under the explanation part of that definition. We want to explain the word of God, and then see its relevance, its usefulness to the hearers. J.I. Packer says, this is, I think, a unique feature of, of uh, definitions. He says, it is the event of God himself bringing to an audience a Bible-based, Christ-related, life-impacting message of instruction and direction through the words of a spokesperson. The event. It is an event, isn't it? It is a happening. God is coming and speaking, and you are experiencing, based on the Bible, Focus on Christ to apply his word to your heart. Can I just say from Hebrews 2, for 1, I will declare your name in the assembly of the brothers. Mm -hmm. He's right there in the, in the church with us. Amen. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he's not passive. 
as, as, as we see, he is using it, the Spirit for the reading and for the preaching. He's not a passive you know, audience. He's not just checking things out. What are they going to do? He is, he is receiving the praise and he is preaching. And he is blessing. And he's exhorting. He's applying. Forgiving. As the word is used for the assurance of pardon. Yes, he is forgiving. And before that, he is calling you to confess. Yes. Another man says, the preaching is empowered exposition that rightfully submits the shape and emphasis of the sermon to the shape and emphasis of a biblical text. So it is spirit-powered. And, of course, the sermon ought to be based on the flow and the emphasis in particular text, on the form of the text. You cannot just shape um, the sermon without any regard to the text. You cannot just take a clause and say, okay, this is now going to fit what I wanted to say. No, I want to say what the text says. And that's what I am here to do, is to explain and to apply what the Lord says, not what I want it to say. Not what would be a great three-point sermon. Jonathan Cruz, in his book, uh, What Happens When We Worship, says, preaching is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus speaks through his ordained servant, saving sinners by the spoken word to the glory of God. I took all these and I summarized what preaching is. The Holy Scripture is heralded by a lawfully ordained minister, by explanation, illustration, and application to the glory of Christ. So it's heraldic. It's, there's this messenger it's heralding the, new, the news of the Word of God, explaining and illustrating and applying to the glory of Christ. William Perkins wrote a book called The Art of Prophesying, which is the art of preaching, okay, proclaiming. And uh, he gives several, he gives just a lot of good counsel for those would-be preachers and those present preachers, and uh, he summarizes various tools of hermeneutics and homiletics, understanding the Bible and preaching the Bible, but then he, he says, some of everything that I just wrote over the last, whatever, 100 pages, preach Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. So what are we preaching? Christ. By the power of Christ to the praise or glory of Christ. Preaching must be Christ-centered. He's the beginning, the middle, and the end. He is the substance of the word. Who is the preacher? The larger Catechism 158 says, The word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted, and also duly approved and called to that office. This means that men who are fit for the office men alone who are fit the office may preach. So no women may preach, and no men that are unfit may preach. And fitness would be, of course, determined by the Word of God, and the particular session and presbytery would avail themselves of the Scripture, see if a man is fit. So we, that. we see that in 1 Timothy 3, qualifications for an elder. We see what Paul says in Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, and uh, many other places. There was. Uh, I know this is a given in this context 
like who should be preaching. But we know elsewhere it is not a given. And people come up with all different reasons, and they play with scripture to say, well, this woman is under the authority of the session, therefore she's not exercising authority over the elders, therefore when she gives a message, she's giving it under the authority, and she's not exercising authority. It's just a bunch of malarkey. Uh, Calvin, in his, I was reading uh, three of his sermons on 1 Corinthians 11, and he says, what a horror it would be to have a woman in the pulpit. Not because he hates women. He doesn't. He loves women. And he actually balances in the, the sermons the, the proper role of women and, and men in, in ministry. But he says it goes against nature. And it goes against God's word. And it's not just any man who can preach. It's not just, hey, I, I want to preach, so give me, give me a pulpit and I'll, and I'll do my thing. Uh, many years ago, when I was supplying the pulpit for some for some uh, some church, I was preaching part of Ezekiel, and Ezekiel had some interesting sections, uh, colorful language, if you will. He was a prophet, um, and I used a word that Ezekiel used that rhymes with "door" that refers to person's uh, infidelity, and. I heard from the, the pastor that someone had complained that I would use such language in the pulpit. And I said, but Ezekiel uses it. And the, minister, the, the pastor, thankfully, um, defended me in, in that case. But what I, what I appreciated from this one who complained was he said, whoever he or she or they were, um, we need to protect the pulpit and we need to protect the people. That's true. We must not just allow anyone and everyone to be at the pulpit. We ought to protect the pulpit. So the Pastor Search Committee is doing a very important job. The, the associate pastor will not be exclusively preaching, but he will be preaching. So, if he's, a, if he's going to be a pastor, he needs to preach. Therefore, the PSC will do well to spend much time on this particular individual's preaching to protect you and to protect what we hold dear, the pulpit. So that spirit of protection is a commendable spirit. We value the Word of God so much that we want only those who can be lawfully ordained ministers giving the Word, feeding the sheep. And there's power in preaching. Give you a little bit of Latin from Luther. Praedicatio verbi dei est verbum dei. Translated, the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Calvin says, God deigns to consecrate to himself the mouths and tongues of men in order that his voice may, be, may resound in them. Elsewhere he says, the minister is the very mouth What a sobering and terrifying reality. The Lord would set apart mouths of ministers, weak people. It's, it's the kind of stuff that makes one say, who is sufficient for these things? As, as Paul does. Is there any reason to believe 
Consecration, yes. Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 16, to his disciples, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So as the disciples are being faithful missionaries, faithful to preach the word of God from city to city, town to town, on and on, if, they re- if, if a city, a person rejects the disciple, they are rejecting Jesus. And if they're rejecting Jesus, they're rejecting the Father. And if they receive the disciples, then they are showing that they are allowing the Word of God to dwell within them. They are saying, yes, this is Christ's Word. The disciples are just a messenger. It's not the disciples' words that matter. It's it's that they are simply giving Christ. They're they're simply giving the words of Christ. Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 17, that Christ came and preached in Ephesus. When was Jesus in Ephesus? He ascended, didn't he? He's up at the right hand of the Father. When did he make a trip to Ephesus? Through Paul. When Paul preached the gospel to those in Ephesus. Same thing with the Corinthians. But God uses the preacher in his holy spiritual power. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.11, He who speaks, or he who preaches, let him speak God's oracles. The preacher is speaking the oracles of God, giving the word of God. Now this phrase, the preaching of the word of God, is the word of God, can be uh, misunderstood. So some correction is in order. Jonathan Cruz, in his book, says, We are not claiming that a preacher, de facto of his office, preaches the very words of God every time he enters the pulpit. Oh, pause there for a moment. So it's not like, well, that's the illustration that Jesus would have used when the preacher uses it. Okay? And everything the preacher says is not, by the fact of him saying it as a minister lawfully ordained, the Word of God, okay? Because a lot of people say a lot of different things yeah. and a lot of different pulpits, and they cannot all be true. Though I go on, Cruz goes on, but Scripture tells us that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures of old illumines the preachers of today and those who hear them. David Strain, in his book, Expository Preaching, which is resource C, I believe, uh, and it's, it's for you guys, okay? It's not so much for preachers as it is for the congregation. It's an excellent book. Um, so, read it. It might be a future men's Bible study book. He says, When the pastor faithfully and accurately explains and applies the Bible in a manner consistent with the Bible itself, what he says has all the authority of God speaking in his word. So, it's not like you know, the, the preacher is like the Pope, and, hey, I said it, and that's the word right there. No. Paul even tells us we need to be like good Bereans, and we need to examine things. So we, we examine, and when we examine, we say, yes, this is the proper explanation, this is the proper application of the Word of God, and it's God speaking to you by His Spirit through this weak minister. We know the Word of God is living and active. The Word is life. It 
his, his energy to, to do what the Lord says his word is going to do. And he uses that living active word through living and active preachers. In the moment, in that event, that, that God is speaking through the minister. God is speaking. So you can't just take it or leave it. Yes, you examine things to be so. But you have to say, well, that was just my who said it. There are some things, and, and I try to minimize these, obviously, because I try to do my study and proper preparation and whatever, but I might say something that is faulty. I think I, uh, um, a recent blunder was I mentioned John the Zealot when it was Simon the Zealot. Foolishness, of course. Okay? And some of you might have caught that, and nobody, nobody told me. <laughs> but that's okay. I mean, I know. So if you caught that a couple weeks ago, you're like, no. God's not obviously telling me that it is John the Zealot as opposed to Simon the Zealot, because Simon the Zealot is the one. And he, well, the minister's wrong in that case. Okay. So you examine, you apply. But when it is a faithful exposition and application of the word, it is God speaking. In that moment, in that time, this is not a dead word. This is living and active. So we come to larger catechism 155. The Spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against temptations and corruptions, of building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. So God does make the reading of the word effective in all those but the divine say it's especially the preaching. That's where there is power. There's power in the word of God. Power unto salvation. Do we believe that? If so, then we'll hear it with greater adoration and desire to apply. Charles Spurgeon says, There is no worship of God that is better than hearing of a sermon. It stirs all the coals of fire in your spirit and makes them burn with a brighter flame. Maybe he is speaking from the position of someone who heard Spurgeon's sermons. <laughs> yes, if you heard a Spurgeon sermon, yes, okay, it stirs all the coals of fire in your spirit. It's not Spurgeon who stirs the coals of fire. It's the Holy Spirit. Yes. Amen. That's what we've been saying. It's the spirit who's used in this minister. Yes, sir. Yeah, and here in our, in our churches, we emphasize careful preaching and reading of scripture. We should see that in the context of how many Christians uh, have suffered under distorted versions of the Christian faith. Yeah. Probably some of us here have been through that. Mm -hmm. We suffered under a very distorted version of what the Christian faith is about. And that's perhaps tragic in our lives Where uh, 
power of the pulpit. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, what better, the biggest example I have is Jim Jones, uh, Jonestown. You know, a quasi-Christian minister that led thousands of people to death. So James' warning in chapter 3, verse 1, is quite relevant to, to, to him and to, to all those who play fast and loose with his word. That let not many of you become teachers, if you will encourage stricter judgment. It is... You ought to ascend the pulpit with fear and trembling. And Luther remarked that he there was never a point in all of his ministry when he didn't shudder as he ascended to preach. Because we serve the Holy God, and we are saying, this is what God's Word says, and this is how you are to apply God's Word. To speak on behalf of God is not a light matter. Sometimes, some weeks I feel it more particularly than others. Uh, when, we're when I preached on uh, some of this, uh, with Gethsemane, that was a very hard thing for me to go through. And the whole week, I was, my stomach was in knots, and Chris could tell you. And I preached, or I was asking the brothers in the office for um, extra prayers. I just, I felt the weightiness of that text a bit more. Uh, and I just knew that I, I wanted to do justice to the suffering of Christ in the garden, and it was terrifying. Not thinking that God's going to smite me, but because He is a holy God, and how dare I mess with His word well, that kind for of His good, or for His glory, and for your guys' good? That kind of trepidation is good insurance. So, application, pray. Pray for those who preach. Pray for yourself to hear the word. Prepare to listen to the preaching. Pray for a hunger for the word of God. Pray that you would listen actively to the living and active word. And of course, attend. Attend worship as, as often as you can. And practice what is preached. Thomas Watson said, Dreadful is the case of those who go loaded with sermons to hell. Yeah. Yeah. And all those sermons. Oh, I, I went to morning and evening worship. Okay. And what did you do with what you heard? Well, I, I went. I heard it. Okay, and what did you do? The sermon is not over when the minister says amen. There's one story of, a, of a, an old Scottish uh, husband and wife, and the wife asked her husband if the sermon was done when he arrived home. No, he replied, it has been said, but it has yet to be done. There are points of application in every sermon. Sometimes they are explicitly mentioned, other times they're not. You, just, you know how the word is to be applied. I don't list out all the ways that the word is to be applied. Sometimes I just mention application without saying it, and let's apply it this way. The word is, is used to apply, and so there are many things that we can be considering doing, and there are different ways that we can apply the word. We must go. Yes? I have a question of the balance between um, 
explaining that, teaching that, and the application, um, would they be 50-50? Would it be more focused on preaching the Word of God and teaching what this means, this particular verse, what is being said, um, and then a smaller application time? I'm not sure that I'm coming across clear. Yeah. So the application is part of the uh, preaching, right? And it's not uh, the the ratio between explanation, illustration, and application is not the same in any given text. Some texts are particularly challenging to uh, unravel and unfold for the people. So there might be a sermon that's going to take more time to explain. And other times, the minister is unwise to explain something that is very clear to the congregation. And well, okay, here's what it, here's what it says, and we can spend more time making application. So it depends on the text. Yeah. And the Puritans were excellent at making application. Uh, perhaps some hearers were like, "That's too many," because they call these uses. And you might have 15 uses in you know, an hour-long sermon. Because they were intent on explaining, but also on applying the word. Usually, uh, I address uh, a brief point of application or two after each uh, se- subsection. Uh, give a couple different ways that it could be applied. Sometimes I wait to the very end. Sometimes it's fronted. It just depends on the text and the minister's way of delivering, because uh, understanding the text, studying the text is one thing, but then also putting it in a deliverable form is another. Another thing we can, I mentioned the ten worship, so you have every other week two opportunities to come to worship. We know that some are not uh, not able to attend the evening worship, but we put that out there for, for everyone. Um, again, a number of years ago, it was a mix-up in this particular church. I was asked to supply the pulpit, and um, and I said yes right away, because as a licentiate, I was looking for many opportunities, and it was, the place was only three minutes away from where I was living. I'm like, yeah, that's, I'll go there. Um, looking for opportunities, let's do this. So I shot back immediately after I was asked if I could preach. Yeah, here's, here's the text, title, etc. Let me know if there's anything else you need. And I heard nothing from the, the pastor. And I just assumed everything was, was ready to go. So, so I come to the church when it's time. And apparently the person didn't get my email. So I had someone else prepare for supplying the pulpit. Someone who, dro- who drove 90 minutes from Prescott to Phoenix to preach. And uh, so we both get there, and I, I know the guy I've met him before, I've heard him preach, I actually preached for him before. Uh, we get there, hey, what are, you, what are you doing here? You're pretty far away, why are, you, why are you here? Well, I was asked to preach. Where? I was, I was asked to preach. What's going on here? Uh, um, he deferred to me as you know, a young man who needed more and more experience, and he was humble about it. But one of the members said, Guys, what we should do is have a preach-off. Oh, yeah. This minister is going to preach, 
And, and then you're going to preach. We didn't do that. Um, but that says something about the, the person's desire to hear the word preached more and more. So you have many opportunities. And again, every other week, we're going through the Psalms. And then um, we're going to go to the Lord's Prayer. Wonderful sections of Scripture that we'll be reflecting on. Come to evening worship when you can. And then finally, the word benedicted or blessed. Our word-centered worship concludes with the word. What the benediction is not, it is not a nice way to conclude the service. It is not a final prayer. Though in the instance of... Um, so, in the PCA and the OPC, perhaps other Reformed denominations, uh, because the benediction comes from a minister, if you're not a minister you actually can't pronounce a benediction. Uh, you can say a prayer at the end in lieu of, or you have someone who has, is an ordained elder to give the benediction. Um, so, but the benediction is not intended to be simply a final prayer. It's not simply a goodbye till we meet again. It's not a good word from the pastor, some sound advice before everyone leaves. It is the minister pronouncing a divine blessing. Benediction comes from two Latin words, bene, which means good or well, and dico, which means to speak. It is to speak well. It's pronouncing something good upon the people. Cruz says, God blesses his people by confirming that his name is on them for good in Christ, and thereby strengthens them to serve him in the week ahead. It's a confirmation that the Lord is with you, and he's strengthening you for the next six days. Remember, we begin the week, the Lord's Day. We are not anticipating the rest. We begin at a posture of rest because we are now in the we are now new creatures in Christ. That's why and we'll look at uh, later on uh, this morning. The um, fourth commandment goes from Saturday to Sunday because of that watershed moment, namely the resurrection of Christ. There are many examples of benedictions in the Word. There's the ironic blessing, and number six, blessing of a new name. There's Romans 15, 13, blessing for a filling up of joy, peace, and hope. Do you think you need joy, peace, and hope for the coming week? Yes. Even for that Lord's Day? Every moment. Every moment. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 is a blessing of the triune presence. You need the Father, you need the Son, you need the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 13, there's a blessing of equipment to serve Christ. You need to be equipped. And you can rest assured that the Lord so equips you. There is, in 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11, the blessing of strength in the face of suffering. Here, especially in other places where Christians are suffering great persecution, that benediction probably means more to them than other benedictions. The Lord is going to strengthen you in the face of this suffering. At the very end of the Bible, there is a benediction, a, canon a canonical conclusion of blessing of grace upon God's people, on all those who would read his word. There's also hand lifting. You guys have seen me do this, and you, some of you, many of you do this. Okay, this is the sending forth, and this is the receiving posture. Leviticus 9, 22 and 23 says, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. 
And Moses and Aaron went into the tent, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all people. So there's a connection between lifting up the hands in context of worship, offering, and then there's the blessing of the people. We offer up praises to the Lord, sacrifice of praise, and Jesus, uh, we see in his word in Luke 24, and he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. So the Lord lifts up his hands, he blesses them, he leaves them, you could say, in one sense, you know, there's the corporate worship, and then that has concluded the benediction. But the Lord is always with us Monday through Saturday as well. And we have every reason then to be full of joy and to be blessing God, to be speaking well of God and to God in uh, every, every day, obviously. A few more quotes here. It is a blessing that seals the church in the name of the Lord. In giving us his name, he brings us into his care and gives us a share in the household of faith. Blessing that seals the church. Brian Chapel, in, in his in a book, or I can't recall where, maybe it was a sermon, says the benediction is the promise of blessing for the tasks God calls his people to do. It's usually followed by a charge, like go in peace, or go now and serve God in this way with confidence that he is going with you to help you, to bless you. Herman Bobbink references the apostolic benediction, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and he says, This apostolic benediction of the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is the core of the universal, undoubted Christian faith. That's the, say, the sum of Christian faith, that triune God is with you, blessing you. He has given you salvation. So the application, of course, is to receive the benediction. It's not my blessing, it's not the minister's blessing, it is the Lord's blessing. And because it is the Lord's blessing, mediated through a minister, it has the power that any divine blessing would have. And there's some mysterious element to that, of course. I don't know how all that works out, but I know that the Lord says to do it, and the Lord pronounces blessings upon his people, and so they will be blessed. The, the rest of that quote from Paj, I didn't finish it. Remember, the first part was, to be like Christ is the perfection of Christian excellence. To be with Christ is the consummation of the Christian's blessedness. Consummation of Christian's blessedness. And that's what benediction is. It's that Christ is with you. Blessing. It's a great blessing to be reminded before we start the work week that we are met with grace, we are met with God's favor, with his peace, with his love, with his joy, that we might glorify him and serve him every moment of the day. What a, wonder, what a wonderful blessing the word of God is. Read, preached, given at the end of the service. Lord is gracious to us, very kind to us, and he loves us. Let's pray. God, as we've considered just these elements of how the word is expressed in the corporate worship, 
We marvel at your grace. We acknowledge that we do not deserve to have your word read to us. We do not deserve to have your word preached with power. We don't deserve to have your word upon us as a blessing. We deserve to be in darkness. We deserve to be in death. We deserve to be in hell forever. So, Lord, we thank you that you have lavished your divine blessings upon us. You've given us salvation. Pray, Lord, that we would use this for your praise. We would always strive to, to prize your word, however, whenever it is expressed truthfully. For your glory, for the good of one another, for our good as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.